You're listening to Tom Fitton's weekly update here on JW TalkNet. Hi, Judicial Watch President Tom Fitton here with our weekly update here on social media. Thanks for joining us during this cold winter week. A lot to talk about the Roger Stone indictment. The immigration crisis continues. An update on Air Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi's abuse of military luxury travel, and also a new federal lawsuit that we filed on the FBI Russiagate collusion targeting Donald Trump. And we have, uh, what else do we have? Oh, how could I forget? (laughs) Senator Cory Booker, Spartacus, gets a pass from the Ethics Committee. Uh, So really outrageous uh, development there. But, you know, first up, I want to talk about the crisis on our southern border. Uh, Because uh, the government shutdown is over. The uh, Congress is negotiating amongst itself uh, whether or not they can come up with border wall funding over the next few weeks before uh, the next deadline on uh, whether uh, a budget is signed into law or an appropriation is signed into law by the president or not. Uh, and the president is indicating, and it's pretty clear, the Democrats on the Hill don't want any money for a border wall here, any new money for a new border wall. So the president may declare a national emergency and uh, use the powers the law gives to him, and the law does give him these powers, uh, to uh, take money from the military budget to uh, defend the border by building a wall. Now, it's about time that we acknowledge the national emergency on the border. Now, the president's response is to declare an official national emergency, or it looks like that might be his response, of course, Congress is dithering because it's controlled mostly, and I mean this both on both sides of the aisle, the leadership of both sides of the aisle is not terribly interested in taking additional steps to secure the border. The leadership of both parties don't want a border wall. If they had wanted a border wall, it would have been done under the Republican Congress, and it obviously isn't going to be done under a Congress controlled by both Democrats in the House and Republicans in the Senate. And so the president is reading the tea leaves, and he evidently has decided he's going to proceed with a national emergency, which will be controversial, uh, but likely upheld in the courts. But still, uh, it's an important development in the sense we have a president, as I previously told you, who is finally talking correctly about the border in terms of its dire national security impact on our country, uh, its threat to the public safety, and the humanitarian crisis that's caused as a result of an open border. Because, you know, the left and the open borders crowd likes to tell those of us concerned about the rule of law and immigration that you're anti-immigrant or you don't like illegal aliens. Actually, it's the exact opposite. If you value the lives and humanity of illegal aliens, then you want to end illegal immigration. Because uh, the illegal alien human smuggling operation that has resulted from our open borders is a humanitarian crisis. It results, as the president has highlighted, in mass abuse of the aliens caught up in it. Uh, It leads to sexual abuse. It leads to uh, crimes against these aliens in terms of extortion and other crimes like that. So the idea that you'd be in favor of an open borders regime that encourages that type of activity tells me that you're actually maybe not you maybe you're the ones those of you on the open border side who don't care about illegal aliens because I can tell you I care about the illegal aliens 
who are killed as a result of the trek that they undertake because of the giant welcome sign that is our open border. You know, I, I think we should be against human trafficking, and that's what illegal immigration is these days. And anyone who tells you otherwise uh, is ignoring the truth. And so uh, I don't know what the president's going to do, but I can tell you he can't do enough uh, in the sense that the crisis is urgent enough uh, to uh, really take strong steps to secure the border. And I've previously highlighted the need I believe for the Defense Department and the military to take the lead in securing the border. We've had this uh, decades-long experiment with civilian um, security at the border, and it isn't working. I don't think it is going to work, even with a wall. So I do believe the military is an essential component of any security uh, at the border. Another idea that uh, I think is very much worth considering is designating the drug cartels that are uh, behind much of the humanitarian crisis I've highlighted and the drug scourge at the border that's led to, uh, I think the latest number of murders in Mexico is 33,000, some crazy number like that, which is up from 26,000 from the year previously. It's a war in Mexico. So these cartels are essentially terrorist entities, and we've highlighted the links with Islamic terrorists, uh, these narco gangs have. So we think it's appropriate to consider a, uh, designating these organizations as foreign terrorist organizations. And that obviously would give the president and our government much more, uh, 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 many more options in dealing with them more directly, to put it charitably. Uh, both kinetic and uh, security actions that can be taken to protect American lives uh, from the threat these uh, terrorist groups uh, pose continuously on our border. And I just hope you're tracking uh, the debate. I don't think you can, now that the government's open, pretend that it's over. It's important that you continue to make your voice heard on the Hill. Let them know what you think at 202-224-3121. That's 202-224-3121. I wouldn't tell you to call if I didn't think it had an impact one way or another. Uh, Members are specially attuned to what their constituents are telling them. And just don't presume because you think your senator or congressman disagrees with you on the issue. I don't know how you feel about what I'm suggesting. Uh, But I I think it's up to you uh, as a citizen to let your views be known to Congress. Members are very much aware of the volume of calls that come in. They note who's for what and who's against what, and they take that into account as they uh, proceed, uh, either with votes or in their rhetoric. So I think it's important you take part in this conversation. And of course, Judicial Watch continues its leadership role in upholding the rule of law and immigration. We have been doing this uh, for 15, 20 years at Judicial Watch, fighting for the rule of law and immigration. We fought against tax-funded day worker sites, which are essentially sites where illegal aliens get illegal work, uh, here in local uh, Virginia, in Ruston, Virginia. We fought in uh, California against sanctuary policies in Los Angeles. We have an ongoing lawsuit in San Francisco. That's right, Judicial Watch is in in state court right now challenging uh, the San Francisco Sheriff's Department's uh, sanctuary policy that is both deadly and illegal. Uh, We have a taxpayer lawsuit. In California, taxpayers have the right to challenge 
illegal uh, expenditures of taxpayer funds. And so when you have an illegal policy like the sanctuary policy, taxpayers have standing. So that case is proceeding, and it's in discovery, and we have a trial set for July of this year. So uh, we're not going to wait for a wall. Judicial Watch isn't waiting for a wall to take steps to protect the rule of law and to try to uphold um, immigration enforcement. We are in court. We're in court right now. We've been in court and we'll be in court again. And of course, we've also been on the front lines. Our team went to Guatemala during the first caravan crisis. Uh, we're constantly monitoring the border. Uh, the latest information I have is that the Border Patrol picks up illegal immigrants. They turn them over to ICE. ICE pretends or alleges, or maybe they're correct in saying so, uh, they don't have enough beds to keep them. So you know what's going on? ICE is taking bo- uh, busloads of illegal aliens and dropping them off at churches and bus depots all over Arizona. That's, what, that's, that's the intelligence we're getting. So you've got this disconnect where you have the president bemoaning the catch and release policy and his immigration and customs enforcement continuing to engage in it. Now, what should be the congressional response? They should support more funding for more beds, they, which would allow, um, to the degree they need the beds, uh, more of these individuals to be detained. Uh, but certainly, uh, given the national emergency nature of it, uh, the president can order the military to build the necessary facilities to hi- house every illegal alien who's picked up so they're not caught and released. Catch and release means amnesty, practically speaking, in the sense that these individuals never show up on the radar again unless they're hapless enough or criminal enough to have committed additional crimes and get picked up by the police in a non-sanctuary state or city that results in their uh, eventual capture or recapture by ICE. Otherwise, they're free and clear. They're free and clear. Uh, So those are the types of things that the president can do and, uh, but Congress has got to get on the ball here as well. Uh, the president can take executive action that's lawful and unconstitutional. He's not governing by fiat. The national emergency powers he has have been granted and authorized by Congress, and it wouldn't be unusual for him to do this, despite what the liberal media is trying to uh, uh, pretend otherwise about. So uh, this is, this is a uh, clear and present danger to our country, what's going on in the southern border. It has increased, and I can tell you, because we have the documents from the first time amnesty was talked about. Uh, You hear Republicans and Democrats once again saying we need a comprehensive immigration reform uh, program. Well, you know, that just translates as amnesty. They want amnesty for either the so-called dreamers or so-called... those with temporary protected status who are here in the United States and uh, otherwise would be here illegally, but for supposedly in their home countries there was a natural disaster, in many cases a natural disaster that took place decades ago, and they're still granted temporary protected status. So there's amnesty on the table for the dreamers, the parents, the illegal aliens who brought these supposed kids into the country, this temporary protected status class, and of course the, the, the open borders crowd wants a comprehensive program that provides amnesty to the 11 to 22 million, whatever number you pick, of illegal aliens here. And I can tell you, based on what Judicial Watch has been able to uncover, even talking about amnesty encourages illegal immigration. 
Talking about amnesty encourages illegal immigration. We found this during the George W. Bush administration, when back in 2007 and 6, he was talking about pushing amnesty. His border patrol was doing a survey of the aliens they were picking up, and they were asking them, was talk of amnesty causing you to cross the border? And the response was, of course it is. Are, are you stupid? Of course we're following, uh, we're, we're coming across the border because of the idea of getting amnesty. And so once the Bush administration found out its Border Patrol was asking these questions and worse, getting those answers, they tried to suppress it, but Judicial Watch was able to uncover the documents and expose how uh, the government found out and knew, which, which made much common sense, that illegal immigration was increased as a result of amnesty. So we've got this asylum crisis as well, which needs to be addressed by Congress, which can be ameliorated by having a secure border, uh, and I tell you, the president has got to be creative here because this is a national security threat. Uh, everyone acknowledges it if you're honest. And when you have additional caravans coming up, they should be talking about interdiction uh, of these caravans, not at our border, but either in Mexico or in Guatemala. I mean, we just, you know, we're, we're deploying troops all over the world. In many cases, appropriately. In some cases, we're arguing of whether it's appropriate or not, like in Syria or Afghanistan or places like that. But why is there a debate about deploying troops to defend our southern border? Or maybe deploying a contingent of troops to help Guatemala uh, curtail these caravans that are assaulting our borders? This is, a, this is an organized invasion of the United States uh, by uh, the open borders crowd, uh, that is active in these countries, that is organizing these caravans. We've documented it. We've been down there. We know what's going on. Some of it is actually being organized with your tax dollars we, we're concerned about. We're investigating that. So this is, this is a major issue, and uh, Congress is, except for a few great members, you know, and there's always a contingent in Congress that wants to do the right thing, and you should encourage that. But the reality is, uh, con Congress's solution to this is open borders and amnesty, and pretend national and pretend security. And the president's instincts are Congress isn't going to help him defend the border, and he's going to use the powers he has as president to do it. So he should be encouraged to to do that appropriately. Now I don't want Congress president to do power, exercise powers he doesn't have, but these are powers he has. You know, no one questions the president sending troops to Syria. You know, there's been no congressional declaration sending troops to Syria. But now there's a question of deploying troops to the border. It's unbelievable. Uh, so Judicial Watch encourage you, encourages you to let your elected members of Congress know what you think. But in the meantime, you can be sure that Judicial Watch will continue to advocate on behalf of the rule of law through our Freedom Information Act requests, figuring out what's going on. For instance, in the DREAM Act and the DACA amnesty that Obama instituted lawlessly. Uh, we found out that he, uh, his administration just didn't do any security background checks. They stopped doing them because they were getting in the way of stamping him in. I mean, that, that informs us about how amnesty is going to work. Do you think anyone's going to be really, uh, anyone's application, amnesty application, which would shut down the government, practically speaking, is going to be thoroughly analyzed in terms of security and criminal background checks? It's never happened before and it won't happen in the future. This is our government we're talking about. They can't get the mail to you on time. What makes you think 
that they're going to be able to secure, uh, securely analyze the legal status of 11 million people or 1 million people or even a half a million people. They can't do it. But what the military can do is secure the border. And what we can do is enforce the law on the books that requires the apprehension and deportation of those unlawfully present. And once you start enforcing the law, people will realize that we can't be in the United States without fear for being deported and maybe even facing jail time. So they'll go home, and the problem will become much more manageable. I mean, there, there is a plan to do this. Secure the border, enforce the law. So, that being said, there's a lot else going on. The Roger Stone indictment. I'll tell you, another Robert Mueller special counsel abuse. I read the Roger Stone indictment. You recall he was indicted last week. Uh, and, uh, well, before I even get to the indictment, he was arrested last week after a pre-dawn raid on his home by over two dozen FBI agents and such. Now, you know, when they do a raid on a home, they don't go in half, half uh, you know what. They, they go in with full force. So I don't necessarily blame the FBI for having 30 agents raid the home and arresting him because their techniques are, you know, to protect their people. If they're going to do a raid, they're going to make sure it's done in a way that everyone is safe and sound, both those who are subject to the raid and those who conduct the raid. The, the debate is, and the abuse is, the necessity of the raid itself. Roger Stone is a 60-year-old-plus political consultant who's been quite public uh, in his debates about the Mueller investigation, about his cooperation. He's testified to Congress. And the idea that you needed a raid like this to arrest him as opposed to allowing him just to show up in court or uh, turn himself in, as is often allowed, just shows you that the Mueller operation is about abusing its powers, embarrassing President Trump, Remember, this is, the not, this is not the first time this type of abusive raid has happened. You had the Manafort early morning raid, guns drawn, on Paul Manafort. You had the raid on the president's lawyer's office, Michael Cohen's offices and hotel room, which was extraordinary. And you had these other abuses that aren't well covered by the media. For instance, the special counsel went behind the back of the Trump campaign and the president in uh, uh, subpoenaing and obtaining records of the presidential transition, which aren't really government records, or to the degree they are government records, uh, there is an interest of the president personally in them, but they just went ahead and took them. So there is abuse after abuse by the Mueller operation, and the Roger Stone raid is the latest abuse. But the other abuse is the indictment itself. Because once again, it's not about Roger Stone, it's about the president. And it's about embarrassing him and uh, preparing the battlefield for his remo removal, if not through indictment and prosecution, but through impeachment. And so when you look at the Stone indictment, now you, know, you would think that it's very serious, because it is a federal indictment, it is very serious, because you come up against the federal government, you know, you're likely to lose oftentimes and face a lot of jail time. So the awesome power the federal government has is being abused to target Roger Stone in what I, what I consider to be a low-rent indictment. 
charges of lying to Congress, charges of obstructing justice and tampering with witnesses. And when I look at the lies he allegedly told the Congress, I'm not convinced necessarily they're lies because I don't trust the, the uh, Mueller investigation. They're presenting information from a transcript that isn't public, even though it should be. And the uh, witness tampering um, allegations look uh, silly to me. Now, Stone has allegedly said, I'll get, he's talking about his friend, I'll get your dog, and does some sort of godfather reference. And I'm sure Stone's going to come up and say, look, I was, I was joking. I was going back and forth with my buddy about the testimony. I wasn't trying to intimidate witnesses. It's just absurd. Now, I don't, I don't know if that's the case, but it's a plausible defense. But this is, again, and I hate to use the word process crime because you can't lie. You can't lie under oath. You can't lie to Congress. You can't lie to the FBI. The FBI can lie to you, but you can't lie to the FBI. I mean, the law is the law. We can debate whether that should be the law or not, but, I don't, you know, but that's not the issue. The issue is them going into uh, getting congressional testimony that they supposedly only got about a month before the indictment, despite harassing uh, uh, Roger Stone and Jerry Corsi for uh, probably almost a year now, and going in and picking out questions that weren't terribly important and alleging he lied about them. As I said, this is a low-rent investigation. And remember what Mr. Mueller was hired to do, investigate Russia collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russians. So this isn't about that collusion. There's no evidence of Russia collusion again in this big indictment. And that shows you that, um, uh, prosecutorially speaking, Mueller is scraping the bottom of the barrel. But he has a new indictment that may keep him around for a bit. Now, I know there's been argument, uh, debate whether his investigation is coming to an end. The acting attorney general, Matthew Whitaker, suggested that this week. I don't buy it. I just don't buy it. I think as long as President Trump is president, there will be a special counsel investigation hanging over him. This is why, in my view, it needs to be shut down, because it is harassment. They all know uh, there's no Russia collusion. In fact, when you look at the indictment, you see the two things. that You had Roger Stone trying to figure out what WikiLeaks was trying to do, and supposedly the Trump campaign asking Roger Stone to figure out what WikiLeaks was going to do in terms of leaking any information or emails that had been stolen and given to them. So why would they need to figure out what WikiLeaks was trying to do if they were involved in a conspiracy with them? in stealing the emails. It's so the indictment itself blows out of the water the notion that the Trump campaign was involved in the conspiracy to steal DNC emails or Hillary Clinton emails or have them published improperly. The document does show that the Clinton campaign was pressuring WikiLeaks, but of course, you know, the Clinton campaign is never put under oath. Hillary Clinton has been questioned under oath. I don't believe the lawyers for his, her law firm that improperly uh, was used as a cutout to pay Fusion GPS to create the uh, garbage dossier. They were never questioned under oath. Glenn Simpson was questioned about what he communicated to the campaign about. And he, uh, the Clinton campaign, how, what did he talk to them about? Uh, they, he, he said that it's privileged information. 
Congress hasn't pursued that. Mueller hasn't questioned any of these people about their coordination or pressure on WikiLeaks about the emails. Only the Trump team. These are crimes that Stone is alleged to have committed after the special counsel was appointed. I don't buy any of it. This is why I think the president should consider widespread pardons for all the Americans caught up in Mueller's web. I don't trust the Mueller operation with its maladministration of justice, its biased operations. It's just come out this week that uh, this so-called Trump Tower meeting that took place with the Russian lawyer that was actually working with uh, Clinton's Fusion GPS and met with fit Clinton, the Clinton, uh, as I said, Glenn Simpson's Fusion GPS, both before and after the meeting, uh, Senator Feinstein and Madam Schiff and all the liberal media were suggesting, well, Trump was in on the meeting because Donald Trump Jr. called block, called block calls and Donald Trump had blocked a blocked phone number. Well, it turns out that Donald Trump Jr. didn't actually call Donald Trump in those blocked phone number calls. And CNN was forced to admit that this week. I want to know how long the Mueller special counsel has known that. Shut it down. That's my view. And along those lines, we have a new lawsuit against the FBI over its collusion with uh, the anti-Trump dossier author Christopher Steele and other communications it may have had with others involved in pushing the dossier agenda on behalf of the Clinton gang. Uh, the FBI lawsuit seeks records that James Baker, the FBI lawyer, top lawyer under James Comey, have uh, records that uh, Baker's communications with uh, Christopher Steele, with um, Glenn Simpson, Nellie Orr, who was Bruce Orr's wife, and David Korn, who was a vehicle for getting dossier into the media, who writes with Mother Jones. Now, the FBI came back to us and said they didn't have any documents. Well, this, as I say, is belied by Baker's closed-door congressional testimony in October of last year, in which he reportedly testified that Korn, a reporter for the far-left Mother Jones magazine, had provided him with a copy of the anti-Trump dossier the day after President Trump's 2016 election victory. Baker also reportedly testified he believed at the time at the time, Korn received the dossier from Simpson, the co-founder of Fusion GPS. Now, we also have a lawsuit about Baker, again, the top lawyer for the FBI. Why on earth is he involved in, quote, in, the, in these investigations? The fact you had the leadership of the FBI running this investigation like they were regular FBI agents shows you the corrupt nature of it, because that's not the way investigations like that are supposed to be run. And Baker acknowledged he had a meeting with the Clinton, uh, a Clinton campaign lawyer, an unusual meeting about these hacks that I've talked about. We've sued already on that. We are suing on the Bruce Orr communications. You remember, his, uh, her, again, his wife, Nellie Orr, worked for Fusion GPS. This is a mess of a scandal, and this is the scandal. Judicial Watch is investigating the real Russia scandal, which is the hijacking of the FBI and the Justice Department, and it was a friendly, it was a friendly takeover by the Clinton camp of the FBI and DOJ to target Donald Trump. 
with illegal spying operations, and later with an illicit special counsel operation. And Judicial Watch has almost 40 lawsuits trying to get information on what went on there. And, you know, I know the president is upset about the unfair targeting of him, and he's right to. One of the options he can exercise in exposing what went on is declassifying the FISA material, declassifying other records demonstrating what was going on when he was being targeted by uh, the FBI and DOJ. And, of course, he should direct, not ask, not suggest, direct the Justice Department to investigate the criminal nature of the tar- his targeting. I mean, this is not a political debate. If FBI and DOJ officials and State Department officials and CIA officials were, illegal, uh, were improperly targeting Donald Trump for political reasons, that would be a crime. It would be a crime. And who is investigating it? No one. The IG is supposedly looking at it, but he doesn't, he doesn't do criminal prosecutions. And the reason it's not being investigated because the Mueller operation is part and parcel of this criminal activity. It benefited from it. It's using this illicit dossier. The whole FISA fraud was part of Mueller's operation as well. And this is why it's essential the Mueller operation be curtailed and shut down because as long as it's operating, the DOJ is never going to ask tough questions because they're afraid of the blowback. And this is a constitutional crisis, folks. And it looks like Judicial Watch, at this point, is the only one willing to go to court to figure out what's going on in a substantial way. Next up, Nancy Pelosi, speaking of um, congressional failures of leadership. Nancy Pelosi, as I've discussed previously, has a record of abusing the perks of her office in the handling of military luxury travel. As Speaker of the House, first time she was Speaker, she had access to military luxury jets to go back and forth to her home, and she abused that privilege by repeatedly making and then canceling requests for military jets to take her home, which caused much consternation in the Air Force. Judicial Watch has the document showing that. And then, of course, she had these abusive codels, these congressional delegations, taxpayer-funded junkets abroad on military luxury jets that included top-shelf alcohol. And they were demanding military luxury jets because if they had commercial travel, they couldn't bring congressional spouses on the trips for free. So when I say her office abused the Air Force, I mean it because we've got the documents. And it didn't stop after she became minority leader, when she lost power and became minority leader. Because practically speaking, the minority leader gets to set up these codels as well. And judicial watches have found a codel set up by Nancy Pelosi that cost you $185,000. We asked for it to co- uh, it included... Uh, $134,000 in expenses, plus $50,000 as an advance of funds for an escort officer, which raises it up to about $185,000. So oftentimes the military on these trips provides escort officers, military officers who basically are Sherpers, uh, for the members of Congress. 
And I don't blame the military for assigning officers to uh, help the members of Congress uh, traverse the countries they're in and deal with, you know, set up and provide logistics for these meetings. If the meetings were substantive, if it didn't involve uh, going around and doing, doing a lot of tourism. You know, this is a perfect example, these junkets, of uh, the trips being, uh, having an alleged business purpose to mask what they really are, which is just tourism on your tax dollar. This particular trip went to, let me get my glasses on, was on in 2015. It was from July 30th to August 6th. Pelosi took a trip to Milan, Rome, and Naples, Italy, and Kiev, Ukraine. Ukraine, oh my gosh, I wonder what Nancy Pelosi was doing in Ukraine. For herself, her husband, several members of Congress, and their spouses. The trip included Milan, Rome, and Naples with visits to the Vatican Museum, Sistine Chapel, the Duomo, uh, where, uh, and also the viewing of uh, Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper. In fact, Nancy Pelosi's staff wanted a specific crew for Pelosi's flight. This is, the, this is the epitome of, we hear the left talk about privilege. This is privilege. Oh, we have this military luxury jet we have access to, and we love the crew on the plane that, we get at, that takes care of us. And I'm sure these are great crews that staff these planes. So let's ask for the folks that staff this luxury jet that we liked before. And the response from the Air Force says it would be a disastrous precedent to set even if it were possible. The Air Force further points out our, uh, our crews have plenty to balance already with military duties and their civilian employers. So they don't really care or, or are aware of the impact they have with these specific requests. So they get their alcohol on some planes and they want their specific crew on others. And this is the military they're making demands of. So when the next time you hear debates about military spending, know that there's an entire wing of the Air Force devoted to shepherding members of Congress around on military luxury jets. It's the same wing that provides support for the president when he travels Air Force One and other things, which Judicial Watch has exposed. We've exposed the cost of travel for President Obama and the cost of travel for President Trump. We didn't stop asking the question because President Trump was in office. But these congressional delegations are notorious for abuse. There's another one. There was a Codell trip for Senator Cory Gardner, who is a Republican senator from Colorado. He traveled commercial, so you can have congressional delegation trips, as I noted, that can go on commercial flights. He went to Asia, uh, Tokyo, Japan, Korea, Beijing, and Hong Kong. This trip and flights with per diems, per diems, yes, they get cash per day for expenditures cost at least $26,000. It's one trip for one senator. Well, I shouldn't, be, I shouldn't say it's one senator. It might be more than one senator. So our previous numbers have uncovered that Nancy Pelosi's trips when she was speaker cost about $2.1 million with a hefty cost for alcohol. And it's, it just never stops. This is something Judicial Watch will continue to monitor. We will file additional FOIA requests. We have already filed FOIA requests for documents about congressional delegations. Now, Senator Rand Paul, for instance, he refuses to go on these trips. They're offered to the members all the time. 
And of course, you know, if a private entity wanted to provide senators and congressmen with a trip to a country where they ought to learn about, it is a nightmare because the so-called ethics rules almost make it impossible or don't make it worth the time for members to figure out how it is they can get past the ethics czars in the Hill to go on privately funded trips. Oh, and the left says, well, you can't have these private groups do it because they will influence the senators and congressmen. You know, that instead we have our tax dollars being wasted in military junkets where there are no controls and no accountability. So members can travel abroad. They don't need to do it through these codels. They can do it through private donations, or frankly, they don't need to do it at all in some cases. Uh, but Judicial Watch, again, we're doing all the work here. We're exposing the numbers. So we've exposed Air Pelosi, and we will continue and investigate uh, because we have already know she has a penchant for this, her use of military luxury jets on her behalf, and to be fair to her, on behalf of other members of Congress, because as we point out, both Republicans and Democrats go on these congressional delegation trips. And look them up, because there's scandals a bunch. I mean, we were, we were doing this work back, way back when. Senator Arlen Specter, who's now passed away, he used to be a senator from Pennsylvania, a Republican and then a Democrat, he would go on trips abroad, and it was a nightmare for the State Department, because when a member of Congress comes into your country, if you're a, mem- if you're a State Department official in that country or an embassy staff, you obviously need to drop everything and take care of them, which included setting up squash, mem- squash matches for Senator Specter. That's right. They needed to make sure he had a squash partner because he liked to play squash. Your tax dollars at work. So I'll leave, I'll leave you with another outrage. Senator Cory Booker, remember his Spartacus moment during the Kavanaugh smear hearings where he said that I was going to release documents that he was not allowed to release? In a, because I guess this is my Spartacus moment. And so he released those documents during the hearing. Well, in fact, he was allowed to release those documents, so he couldn't violate the Senate ethics rules that he was purporting, as he beat his breath saying, I'm violating the rules. He actually wasn't violating the rules during the hearing. So what he did was he went online and violated the rules. Uh, and these were documents about uh, Kavanaugh's tr- time as, a, as a, I think, White House counsel or working in the White House. And so they were executive branch documents that were sent over with the provision uh, that if they're to be released, they'd be done in a regular way with approval of the Senate staff and members, Senate members, because they're privileged documents. And they're only made to help the Senate figure out whether to allow uh, uh, a nomination to go through. They're not meant to be disseminated publicly unless there's a serious process for doing so. And that's why the rules that prohibit their dissemination absent permission uh, mandate expulsion if you're found guilty of doing so, which is something that Senator Booker did. He said in, uh, I'm going to read you what he said. So this is not my allegation he broke the rules. Senator Booker admitted breaking Senate rules when he issued a tweet on Friday, September 7th, saying, Wednesday, I broke a committee rules by reading from committee confidential docs. Senator Booker then posted the following entry on his Facebook account on Sunday, September 9th. And the classification of many documents as committee confidential is a sham. I willfully violate these sham rules. 
I fully accept any consequences that might arise from my actions, including expulsion. So what Judicial Watch did was we filed an ethics complaint against him for his willful violation of these rules. Other members of Senate uh, criticized him for doing so. Of course, some of his colleagues on the left uh, suggested that he did the right thing and endorsed his uh, illicit and arguably illegal move. So the question is, was the Ethics Committee going to do anything? Any senator or officer or employee of the Senate who shall disclose the secret or confidential business or proceedings of the Senate, including the business and proceedings of the committees, subcommittees and offices of the Senate shall be liable if a senator to suffer expulsion from the body and if an officer or employee to, to dismissal from the service of the Senate and to punishment for contempt. Contempt for the Senate, contempt for the rule of law. That's what Senator Booker did. We filed an ethics complaint. And you know what the ethics committee said? We're not doing anything. We received a letter back from the Senate Ethics Committee on Ethics. The Senate, it's called, excuse me, the U.S. Senate Select Committee on Ethics. It's a select committee, which means it's a special committee, and it's set up uh, to be split evenly by both Democrats and Republicans. Typically, Republican uh, committees reflect the majority-minority split of the body. Not the ethics committees, they have it split. Three Democrats, three Republicans. I'm not sure the exact number in the House, but it's also evenly split in the House. And that guarantees that nothing is done without both Republicans and Democrats being on board. And it guarantees that all but mostly, uh, all that guarantees that um, partisans can come in and stop it from happening. But in the case of this case, uh, both the Republicans and Democrats are happy to give Senator Booker a pass. Of course, the senators who were involved couldn't be bothered to sign the letter because I guess that was too embarrassing. We received a letter from the Ethics Committee Chief Counsel and Staff Director, Deborah Sue Meyer, who responded to our letter by saying, The Senate Elect Committee on Ethics has reviewed the complaint you filed against Senator Cory Booker dated September 12, 2018. The committee carefully evaluated the allegations in the complaint and based on all the information before it, determined that no further action is appropriate. Thank you for your correspondence with the committee. And that's the end of it. Senator Booker admits to violating the rules, and it was all part of this effort to smear Brett Kavanaugh, and rather than enforce the rule of law and vindicate the United States Senate, you had the senators on the Ethics Committee who really are tools of the leadership, refused to take action against Booker, who now is running for president, which is his right. But it seems to me if you admit to violating the rules in such an egregious way, you should be subject to expulsion. And the committee couldn't be bothered to even do a letter slapping him on the, on the wrist. This shows you that the corruption in the Senate is bipartisan, and it's shameful and disgraceful, and this is a, continue, a continuation of the Senate's abuse of Brett Kavanaugh. And Republicans can complain about the abuse, but they signed on to it in part by allowing Senator Booker to get away with what he did against Kavanaugh. And who are the members of the Senate Ethics Committee? They are Johnny Isaacson, who is a Republican from Georgia, Christopher A. Coons, who is a Democrat from Delaware, Pat Roberts, who is a Republican from Kansas, 
Brian Schatz, who's a Democrat from Hawaii, James Risch, who's a Republican from Idaho, and Gene Shaheen, who's the Democrat from New Hampshire. So if you're a constituent of any of those members, you should let them know what you think. And you should let your other senators know what you think about the shameful and disgraceful, disgraceful decision by the Senate Ethics Committee to give Senator Cory Booker a pass for knowingly violating Senate rules, as I say, in order to smear Judge Kavanaugh. So, um, but Judicial Watch isn't put off by this. And we, I mean, I was not naive about what the Senate Ethics Committee was going to do. But someone's got to hold these senators to account. And this is why I'm pushing you to keep on pushing the Senate to do so. We just can't say, oh, well, they don't want to do anything, so that's the end of it. No. We have to hold senators to account for not doing the right thing here. Because the Senate Ethics Committee is not the end-all and be-all here. The Senate can move collectively here if they wanted to. So you should ask your members what they're doing. Because there's going to be another Supreme Court nominee, I bet you, in the next two years. And are they going to do what they did to Kavanaugh again? You bet you. You know why? Because they got away with it. I mean, Kavanaugh was appointed and confirmed eventually, but they took his pound, they took the pound of flesh. And I guarantee you they're going to a lot of nominees who might otherwise put their names in for a Supreme Court nomination won't because of what Kavanaugh went through. And nothing's been done to reassure the American people that the Senate is still in business and acting according to the Constitution and the way the founders, have found it, the, way the founders envisioned. They've allowed it to be abused, its process to be hijacked, its process to be overturned by the mob. And when Senator Booker breaks the rules in an in-your-face way, they can't even collectively say what they, he did is a bad thing. I mean, forget about expulsion. How about a letter reprimanding him? Or a letter generally reminding the entire Senate about the sanctity of the rules requiring confidentiality for sensitive documents? This is not what the Senate did. Uh, so... Uh, We've got other Senate. Uh, we've got other ethics complaints pending against Maxine Waters over her incitement of violence uh, directed at the Trump cabinet. We have an ethics complaint still pending on Adam Schiff, which is in cover, which is ethics committees in cover-up mode on both, especially the Adam Schiff complaint, where it's pretty uh, cut and dry that he violated the rules in confirming classified information in violation of his commitment as an intelligence committee. Uh, member to, to uh, be sure not to uh, highlight or disclose classified information. He did that. Senate, the House Ethics Committee hasn't done anything on it. And again, that happens because both members of uh, both, par- both parties don't want to do anything. So uh, I know it seems disheartening, but we're holding him to account. We're holding him to account. You can bet Senator Booker doesn't want anyone uh, talking about his violation of Senate rules again. Now, he may want that because he's running for the president and he's trying to, maybe trying to appeal to the left, who's into these days breaking the rules and, upholding and overturning the rule of law. But we have to hold these senators and congressmen to account. And even if they won't, we're going to keep on working to pressure the Congress to do the right thing. 
because we just can never give up. We can never give up. And your, your judicial watch never gives up. And that's why we fight on behalf of the rule of law, on immigration, on Russiagate, on congressional ethics. With that, I hope you have a wonderful and hopefully warmer weekend, and I'll see you next time here on Judicial Watch's Weekly Update. You have just listened to Tom Fitton's Weekly Update on JW TalkNet. Remember to subscribe and donate at judicialwatch.org slash donate.